Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Today's scripture reading is in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Please take a moment to turn to the text in your Bibles to follow along. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Vivian. <clears throat> well, good morning, church. It is uh, good to be together, amen? I'm glad to worship together. Some of you are like, we'll see after this sermon, if it's a good, good day. Uh, if you are new, uh, this is what we do at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we're making our way through the uh, entire book of Revelation, and we start a new chapter today. <laughs> Better than the 9 a.m. Um, but we are in the middle of uh, a section on uh, the letters to the seven churches, and um, this has been a a, a really helpful section. I, I pray it's been really helpful for us as a community because while uh, these letters were written to specific churches, obviously they're named, um, the, these letters are also true in uh, the, the, the relevant sense that they are for us today, right? Here as, uh, for us as a local community in McKinney, Texas in 2024, these letters are for us today just as much as they were for them in their specific context. And that's why we talk about their specific context as we will here with this one in, in Sardis. It's almost like um, the word of God is living and active, uh, because it is, right? And so I want us to faithfully unpack this letter uh, to the church in Sardis. And, and listen, it is, it is heavy. It's, it's weighty. And so we're going to spend some time wading through these, these six verses. So keep your Bible open as we, as we do this together. And one of the things I, I, I bring out before we get into the letter specifically is that these churches and the things that they were doing, they were facing cultural pressures, and uh, they were political, they were economic, they were uh, social pressures, and really their response to those pressures is what Jesus highlights. So he says, this is how, church, you're responding to this uh, pressure. For example, the first letter to the, to the Ephesians, the, one, the church in Ephesus, the way they were responding to the cultural pressures is that they were doubling down on doctrine, and they were becoming really solid in their theological beliefs, and Jesus commends them for that. However, in that pursuit, what takes place? He says, you've lost your first love. 
And so today in Sardis, it's no different. The difference is uh, there's two letters that have no uh, commendation by Jesus or no applause by Jesus. And this is one of those two letters uh, here to the church in Sardis. And so uh, hopefully you'll see why there, there is uh, potentially nothing that Jesus applauds here in the city. And that doesn't mean there's nothing in the church for him to applaud. It's just that in this letter, he's not giving that the attention in time. Uh, but, but let's start with the city of Sardis, because this is really important to understand the full extent of this letter. So the city of Sardis, on three sides of it, sat on a very, very steep hill with a very steep grade. And uh, uh, through, through the Roman Empire, uh, Sardis was said to be a city that was impossible to scale or impossible to, to capture because of uh, these three uh, sides that, that, that were just incredibly steep. And so the military, the army only had to guard one side ar around the wall. Well, uh, a couple things happened in Sardis. First, uh, in, 80, in 17 AD, there was a massive earthquake that like destroyed all of, of Sardis. And so they had to rebuild it. Sardis prior to that was a very prominent, a very wealthy city, kind of, you know, one of those cities that you go, man, back in the heyday, Sardis was like, it was it. Okay, well, um, if any of you know like cities like that, maybe you have some here in Texas. Um, now, what happens with those cities that feel like, hey, back in the heyday were that, the people living in those cities still think that they're in their heyday sometimes, you know? Uh, Sardis was no different, okay? Like Sardis, the people there thought, man, we're still this great city, we're still awesome, we're still all those things, but everybody outside of Sardis just kind of knew Sardis wasn't what it was. And um, uh, the, the, another way that this happened was, remember when I said that it was impossible to scale these walls? Turns out um, somebody figured out how to scale the walls. And Sardis was actually attacked by two different armies at two, um, two different instances, but they all started very similarly. They started, the first one, by a singular soldier scaling the wall by himself and getting into the city and essentially opening the gates from within and allowing the army to go in. And the other happened very similarly. A small group of men got and scaled the city, got inside, and allowed the rest of the army to come in. And now this might bring a little light why Jesus says in this letter, I'm going to come like a thief at the night and judge you. And everybody in Sardis would go, wait a minute. We remember the thief in the night that came in and from the inside kicked the doors open, right? And so um, that's, that's one thing you need to keep in mind. The other is this, that Sardis was known as one of the largest wool and cloth or textile producers in the area. And if you heard in Vivian's reading and you look in the text, what is, what is this, this language that Jesus is, uses about sin about, uh, and also about victory or conquering? He uses garments, he says, there are a few, a few of you in town who haven't soiled your garments. And then he says, for those who conquer, what's he going to do? He's going to have them in a white robe. And so for people in Sardis, clothing was a big deal. It was, it was something they were very familiar with. And so again, this is the context that I want to wade through this, this letter with. And so let's start uh, where Jesus always begins in the letters in verse 1 with an image of himself. Okay, the image of himself. And so for Sardis, this is the image that Jesus puts forth at the end of verse one. From the words from him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now in the book of Revelation, the number seven 
means perfection. It means completion, okay? More oftentimes than not, that's what it means or it represents here in the book of Revelation. Now, when it says the seven spirits of God, that is like a, a, an unusual phrase for us, but the original audience would have understood that the seven spirits of God was just talking about the complete or perfect spirit of God. That is God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. And then on the other hand, he uses um, the seven stars. Those represent the seven churches or, or, or this idea of the churches being held in Jesus's hands. They are in his control. They are his, they're his possession. So this is the image of Jesus who understands, who knows the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in his church. There's perfect wisdom, perfect knowledge taking place in the church that he controls and is well aware of. However, Jesus has something to say to this church that is very, very clear. And I would say very, very um, well, you, let's just re- listen to it, okay? Uh, verse two, um, excuse me, verse one, the end. I know your works. Now, that's a period there, okay? Now, if you're the, le- if you're the reader in Sardis, you might be like, because you know your works. You're like, yeah, Jesus knows our works. Guys, hey, he knows the ministry we started. He knows about our gathering. He knows our music's great. He knows, hey, hey, Jesus knows this. Like, wait, get ready for what's next. Because usually what happens here in in, in five of the other letters is an applause, right? Is, 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 Is a commendation. But what do we have next? Oh, no, wheels come off. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jesus goes, I know your works. I know your reputation. I know what people think about you around town, around the area of Asia Minor. I know how they, from the outside, peer into Sardis, and they are applauding you. They are going, that's a church alive. That's a living church. And by the way, the word reputation there in the Greek is another word for, them, for, for Jesus to go, you have a name, and your name is alive. Ephesus, when they peer in, Thyatira, when they peer in, Smyrna, when they peer in, they're going, that is an alive church. It is a living church. But Jesus goes, I can peer behind the veil. I see beyond the externalities to the internal state of who you are. And Jesus says definitively, you are dead. It's reminiscent of the way Jesus interacts with the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, right? What does he call them in Matthew 23, for those of you who know your Bibles? He calls them whitewashed tombs. He goes, you, you, you've got this external thing down. You've got, you've got these, these external practices down. However, your heart and what's inside is death, and it reeks of death. And so Jesus here goes, I know your works, but I know your heart more deeply, and you are dead. And so this might give us a reason why Jesus starts in verse 1 with his image being a God Uh, using the image of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who enlivens the church. The, the, The Holy Spirit is the animating power of the church. And he's essentially going, and listen, you have so squelched or quenched the Holy Spirit that there is now pervasive spiritual apathy that is running through the majority of the church in Sardis. Let me say that again. The issue The problem of what's taking place with the church in Sardis is this, spiritual apathy. Oh, they have a reputation, they have an image, they have a facade, but when things are really revealed, it's like their garment district, the finest clothes are cloaking a corpse. That is what Jesus is saying. Listen, I told you this was a pretty pointed word this morning, all right? You heard Vivian read it, all right? But Jesus goes, 
there's hope. You see, in Sardis, um, it was interesting. The pressures that we talked about with these other churches in Ephesus, Thyatira, Smyrna, what we'll talk about in Laodicea, uh, Philadelphia even, really, um, they weren't facing those as severely in Sardis. Like the, the, the Jewish community and the Christians, they had a pretty good relationship, what we can tell by history. The other people, even with the Roman Empire, there was a pretty good relationship with the Christians. So they weren't facing as severely the economic pressures or political pressures and things like that. And so potentially what you have here is you have these churches in the other cities going, man, we wish we had it like the guys in Sardis. Man, all that freedom, all that ability to do commerce, all those good relationships that they have together. But Jesus is going, listen, don't be fooled. They're, what has gotten them to that level of, of, of tolerance, if you will, is their spiritual apathy. And so let's, let's, let's talk about this idea of, of spiritual uh, apathy. Um, to begin, a church, and I'm not, listen, when we look at these letters, if you think about a different place of worship or a different context, or you think about a mega church or something outside of yourself or this corporate body, if you're part of this church, you're looking at the wrong place, by the way, okay? We look at our own hearts and we look at our own community first. And the warning is this, that a church can look alive and find all sorts of evidences of being blessed by God on the external, but internally being dead, and Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis and as a warning to us today, be careful and don't let the perception of others of you dictate the true reality of what you're about. In business, I remember hearing a term that said perception is better than reality for businesses in, in, in a business. Now, I'm not saying that's a true or good business practice, all right? I'm just saying that if a business or someone could say, hey, listen, we're perceived by our customer base to be this, to be about this, that's almost better and sometimes better than reality, okay? Social media, let's go there, okay? All right, we're gonna hit it all this morning. Social media, that is built on what? That's built on this idea that we can put something out so that someone or something portrays us in a certain way or a certain light that I am in control of. Perception is better than reality. Now, some of it that you put out there is reality. I'm not saying that. But oftentimes, how we live our lives is that perception is better or greater than reality. So we'll do certain things or act certain ways. True? So listen, that may be a business principle, but it is a deadly and lethal principle for our spiritual lives. If we truly begin to believe perception or the externals are more important than the internals, Jesus would say the direct opposite, that you do what? You don't flow from the, the outside in. You flow from what? The inside out, okay? And so this is the point that Jesus is making to this church and to us. He says that we must, in verse 2, do what when we sense spiritual apathy creeping into our community or into our lives? Look at it. What does it say? First two words in verse two of your Bible. Wake up. Wake up. Now, I, I think this is uh, actually very gracious uh, by Jesus um, because this shows, one, that they are not actually dead, right? Right? Because if they are dead, that would mean that there is no life, there's no living in them. But Jesus is going to go on to show us that there is actually some bit of life going on. And so he's calling the church, he's calling this remnant to wake up to the reality of who Jesus is and what's truly going on in them. Like revival is possible. By the way, Jesus is the only one who can look at something dead and say to it, wake up. 
Like he's the one who has that kind of power and he's the one speaking to his church. He's the one speaking to us this morning. I think for many, for many of us, we have written people off as dead or spiritually dead when the reality is they've just fallen asleep. I love what Puritan John Owen says about that idea. He says this, he says, I will not judge a person to be spiritually dead whom I formerly judged to have had spiritual life, which I think Sardis had prior. Though I see him at present in a swoon or faint or unconscious. We don't use in a swoon. Any, so just trying to explain that language as to evidence of the spiritual life. And the reason why I will not judge him so is this, because if you judge a person dead, you neglect him, you leave him, but if you judge him or her to be in a swoon, though never so dangerous, you use all means for retrieving of his life. Like you, you use all means possible to go out and resuscitate the person who's unconscious so that the spirit of God might bring them back to life. And that is what Jesus is trying to do in the church at Sardis. He's trying to resuscitate them back to life. That's what Jesus, by his, the power of his Holy Spirit, wants to do in your individual life, my individual life, if we've fallen asleep this morning. And so listen, what Jesus offers us this morning through his word, again, is grace. Jesus is not writing them off for dead and he's not writing you off for dead. His goal is to wake us up to his glory and his heart this morning. Now, as we talk about spiritual apathy, I want to distinguish two things. And they're this, spiritual apathy versus spiritual dryness. Spiritual apathy uh, and, and spiritual dryness. Um, we will all, as believers, as, as disciples of Jesus, we will all walk through seasons in our life of being spiritually dry where we, 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 feel, uh, we, we don't feel the presence of God uh, like we have in, in the past. We, uh, when we read the scriptures, when we pray, there feels like there is just this disconnectedness. We feel like, uh, hey, I, I'm, I'm just putting in the work, kind of filling the storehouse because this is what the Lord has asked me to do. Maybe it's when we go through a season of wilderness or in the desert or, or times of suffering where there is, there is just this, this dryness in our life. That is not, um, that is not spiritual apathy. I would say spiritual dryness in, in, in many ways in our life, it, it, those are seasons that actually bring us closer to God and by his grace are, are, are unavoidable in, in many ways. Spiritual apathy, on the other hand, which will, is what we're dealing with in the text this morning, is something that I truly believe in the life of a believer and in the church is something that is, is avoidable. And it's something that should be met, as Jesus says, with us becoming alert, waking up, repenting, and turning from our ways so that Jesus might renew us and revive us as a whole. Like, that's the difference between spiritual dryness and spiritual apathy. I didn't want us to confuse those. But there are warning signs in our life as believers that I believe the Lord puts on, on the dash of our life to give us kind of a, an alert to spiritual apathy. Not spiritual dryness, but spiritual apathy. And the first is this. That if, 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 we're, if we find ourselves tolerating sin, we might be drifting into spiritual apathy and indifference towards sin. Maybe it's not even a toleration of it. It's just going, <laughs> I don't even think about it anymore. I, I, I don't even give thought to, to what I put before my eyes. I don't even really think about the words that flow out of my mouth to my, my spouse or to my kids or to my friends or to my, to my gospel community. There's this indifference towards sin. Now, some of you, you, you're like, I'm not indifferent towards sin. Like they, they sin by doing this. Culture is in sin by doing this. And you, oh, you can spot sin. But I want to bring up the story that Jesus talks about when he talks about a log and a speck. 
Like you're really good at not tolerating. You're not indifferent to the speck over here, but you have missed the log in your own eye. Listen, that is also an indicator, I believe, of of spiritual apathy in our lives, but this indifference towards sin personally and corporately. Second would be a diminishing missional zeal. That you've just lost this passion to see people come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Like the most important thing on the world has lost its luster. That the, the reality of the grace that saved you and the mercy of Jesus that has, that has changed your life no longer flows from you with any zeal or passion. And that's locally, that's, that, that, that's globally. Like is there, and in, in many of these things are just marked by an indifference. Is there an indifference toward the missional zeal? of the gospel going out, to heal, to save. Third, there's a quick or easy frustration that you find from other believers. Are you easily or quickly frustrated by other believers? Just, just, the church just, my, my, my practice group, the people in my life, like, it's just, just, just so easily frustrated. What, what's really going on? Is it that you've begun to drift away? You've begun to fall into spiritual apathy? Or is it really that they're that bad? How about the fourth one? You find yourself slow or reluctant to participate in the things of God with the people of God. And I've chosen that language very specifically because it highlights the necessity and nature of the church. Slow to participate in the things of God. So maybe this is the spiritual disciplines of prayer, of scripture reading, of Sabbath, of gathering together, fasting with the people of God. Some of you, you would say, I'm really good at following Jesus in my silo. The problem with that is that's not how Jesus set up you and I following him. We are to follow him in the community of the saints with other brothers and sisters. Yes, do we do those spiritual, are there spiritual disciplines that we practice uh, individually? 100%. But let me tell you, the kerosene on those spiritual disciplines is when we get together and we actually practice following Jesus one to another with each other in praxis groups, in gospel uh, communities, and things like that. If there is a reluctance or a shying away from that, I would maybe see that as a, as a warning light to spiritual apathy. Okay, okay, because um, I, I actually hate lists, and I'm sorry for giving you one there, um, because I think too often we lean on lists and we don't allow the Holy Spirit to speak. But I felt like the, these were important enough to highlight so that we could get the, get the conversation starting, started with what Jesus is trying to lay out to this church in Sardis. And some of you, you, you you're, you're like, oh, okay, Kyle, I, I'm there. I see the warning lights. What do we do? What do we do when we sense or see spiritual apathy creeping into our lives or into our church? Well, we follow the word of God. And Jesus tells Sardis what they need to do, right? He doesn't leave them guessing. He doesn't go, here's the rebuke. Now go figure it out. What does he say? Look at this. After wake up in verse two, strengthen what remains. That's interesting. And is about to die. So therefore it's about to die. So he's not even writing them off as dead. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Strengthen what remains. That is probably a military term 
that Jesus is using that Sardis would have been familiar with. Um, It's this idea of walk around the city and look at the gates. Strengthen what remains. Look, Look at the walls and go, okay, uh, I, I see there's a hole here. Because what, what takes place in our lives when, when spiritual apathy begins to creep in is this. We go, man, look at the gate out front. That's a pretty gate. It's shiny. It's gold. It's tall. It's got spikes on top, so you're not getting over it. But yet we neglect the fact that behind it on the other side is a massive hole, Right? We just put what's out front and we go, hey, isn't it so pretty? And so what he means here, strengthen what remains is this. Do a little spiritual inventory. Walk around the gates of your life and figure out, okay, are there ways in which I am holding on to other passions and diminishing my zeal that are diminishing my zeal for the Lord? How how does that happen? Well, it happens very subtly and easily, to be honest. I was listening to something this week and it was talking about uh, the eclipse, right? April 8th, right? We're having this total eclipse, not of the heart, but of something else. I promise you, we will never do a sermon series called Total Eclipse of the Heart. Some of you are like, I didn't know you're old enough to know that song. I am, okay? Had an older sister. Um, <laughs> but he's talking about this eclipse, and, uh, and, 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 and again, science teachers, you can, you can correct Jake later on for facts, okay? Not me. Um, but they said that you can fit nearly 64 million moons in the sun, 64 million moons can go in the sun. Like, I don't know how they figured that out. They just figured it out. Okay, I trust them. And, uh, and I was thinking about that. So on, on April 8th, right, we're having this total eclipse where one moon is going to block the entirety of the sun momentarily, right? So, so get this with me. So one 64th millionth of the size of the sun in a moment will eclipse what? The whole sun for just just a minute. How in the world does that happen with something so small eclipsing something so great? Okay? And some of you science teachers are like, Kyle, please just get there. Right? How does that happen? It happens because the lesser is closer. It's closer to us. It's closer to earth. So the lesser being so far in front of the greater, closer to the lesser here in earth, does what it eclipses the whole sun itself so that the radiance of the sun would cease to shine. Now, is the sun not radiant? No. Is the sun not glorious? Is it still not 1 64th millionth? No. But what happens is when something of lesser is pulled closer to us, it can eclipse the greater. And in our lives toward spiritual, uh, spiritual apathy, that's what takes place is we satisfy for the lesser joys. I'm not even talking about necessarily sinful things. We, we, we settle for lesser passions and they eclipse the glory or the greatness of who God is. Is he losing his glory? No way. Is he losing his holiness? No way. But what happens is these things draw near to us where they eclipse the power and the zeal of who God is in our lives and apathy begins to shape and form. So think about that. What lesser joys What lower P passions have you given yourself to that might allow apathy toward the person and work of God? Like, what's in your life that you've handed yourself over to that has kind of squelched out the fullness of, of who God is, the light of what he's trying to do in your life? Now listen, it isn't that we've rejected God I don't think the church in Sardis had rejected God entirely, but there was something that had gotten in between them that blocked out what God is doing. And so let me tell you, our passions aren't necessarily, or should I say explicitly hostile to God. 
they just begin to eclipse our passion to God, our passion for God. And what creeps in is spiritual apathy. Jeremiah, when you need some good source material, you go to one of the Old Testament prophets, okay? Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet speaking to uh, the people of God. Jeremiah 2. Look at this. He says there are two, for people, the Israelites, have committed two evils. The first one is this. They have forsaken me, God says. They've forsaken me. They've left me. They've rejected me. They've rejected my glory. They've rejected my way. And here's what that looks like. When you reject God, when you forsake God, when things begin to eclipse the glory and the holiness and the power and the majesty of the God of the universe, here's what happens. You begin to do what? Hew out cisterns for themselves. Now that's Old Testament language. Let me describe this. You begin to dig with your own hands in your own effort uh, places or sources of finding water, of finding things that will secure you, finding things that will give you comfort, finding things that will give you purpose. And he says, here's what you've done. You've rejected me and you went and you've dug your own well thinking that that's going to bring you living water and it never will. And so as spiritual apathy takes root in our lives, this is what it looks like. It looks like forsaking the God of the universe and digging our own well going, this is where the living water is. We'll find it in here, but we're digging, digging, digging all of our energy, all of our strength. And listen, some of it, we're even going, God, aren't you proud of us? We're doing this for you. And he goes, what? You've lost your passion and zeal for me. And if I could add a fifth to that list of lists that I hate, here's the fifth one that I would add. That you become more concerned about doing things for God versus being with God himself. And church, that is a warning to us because that's a fine line. It's not all or none, right? It's not just going, hey, forget doing things for God. No, if we think that this is more important than this, though, the primary, the way in which we work and do things for God must be from a place of being with God where he shapes us and transforms us and leads us. Listen, that's the thing that's gonna combat our spiritual apathy. And so what do we we do with this? Well, Jesus says to them, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Like there was something about what they were doing even for God that was incomplete. I I, I don't know specifically. I'm not even gonna speculate what the incompleteness of their work looked like. But I think in our lives as believers, um, this is where that quote, right? The road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. Where we as the people of God, we know, we know what God says, right? Love your neighbor. We know what God says about drawing near to him, about abiding in, in John 15. And it's knowing all of those things, but not actually practicing them. And us standing before the Lord and, and, and being like, well, I, I, I know I know you said all those things, but golly, I just got busy. But, but, but hey, weren't you really proud of like, hey, our, our, our gathering? And listen, this is an important, uh, this is a necessary part of the church. But if this is the thing that you point at, that you're gonna point back to on that day, the Lord's gonna be like, yeah, that was great, right? But what, did, what, what were you participating in? What were you doing? How were you abiding and connecting your heart with me? I, I'm just convinced that all of us, myself included, we just get so busy worshiping other lowercase g gods of work and success and luxury and our kids, influence, security. And one day we're going to be like, well, why have I drifted? I mean, this is, the, read, read, read chapter one of Hebrews. This is the spiritual drift that he is warning about in that letter as well. And Jesus' call to them, Jesus' grace to them is this. Verse 13, or excuse me, verse 3. 
Remember then what you received and heard. That's pointing to something past tense, isn't it? Remember what you, you, you received and heard. And he goes, keep it and repent. If you don't wake up, I'll come, like I've said, about, like a thief in the night to you. And so here's what Jesus is saying to them. Notice that Jesus doesn't go, hey, pull up your bootstraps. You need to do these things. Jesus doesn't turn into a ball coach. Not that I have anything against ball coaches, but Jesus does not begin to speak like one here. He tells them the truth. He says the key to waking up and staying alert is not conjuring up something new, but rather realizing what we've had the whole time. You realize that, church? Like when we fall prey to spiritual apathy, it's not about figuring out something new. It's realizing what we've known the whole time. The gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ is for us right now, just as much as it was at the moment of salvation. That's what he's saying. Remember what you've heard. Remember what's been in your hands, in your head this whole time. And so that's how we fight spiritual apathy. We again rehearse the gospel in our minds and in our hearts and with our lives, we say it again. We believe it again. We live out of it again by faith. In verse four, as we're wrapping up, he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now, this is a difference in this letter. Typically, he talks about a few in the negative. Here, he talks about a few in the positive. It's very, so that tells you how pervasive spiritual apathy is in Sardis, I believe. But he holds out hope in verse five. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Let's stop right there. So Jesus is going, there's a few of you who have not soiled your garments. Keep going. Keep persevering. Keep being zealous and passionate about the right things. Keep connecting your heart to me. Keep loving, keep serving, keep going. You have not soiled your garments. And by the way, sin, sin in its most basic nature is about soiling the garments, right? Right, we're clothed in something and we have ruined what we're clothed in. That's why Jesus says, when I come to you, I'm going to clothe you, not in your garments, but in my robe of righteousness. And so what Jesus promises to those who persevere, those who wake up, is a new garment, is a garment that is what color? White. White. Now we think of white and we think about purity. When Sardis would have heard white, here's what they would have thought, victor. Because here's what happened in the cities. When they were victorious in battle, they would then come walk through a city wearing white. And so Jesus is going, I'm going to clothe you in white because you are going to be victorious through my victory. And he uses just a hope-filled picture in such a strong rebuke. And he goes, your name will not be blotted out of the book of life, okay? Now, a lot of mystery around what the book of life is, but there is a security that Jesus is saying here to the people who will walk by obedience through faith with him. But notice, it doesn't just end with the book. I, did, I, I, I stopped short here. It doesn't just go, okay, your name's in this book, okay? Your name's over here. I won't blot it out. I won't take it out. But Jesus takes it one step further because he knows our hearts. Listen to this. And he goes, I, Jesus, will confess his name before my father, before his angels. Jesus goes, not only will your name be written in this book, secure forever, but I will be there beside my father and I will speak your name individually. 
What does it look like for the Savior to sit beside his Father and say each person's name to his Father? Sean, he's mine. Karen, she's mine. When you read this text, this is meant to be felt very individual, like Jesus is going to name you by name to his father and go, mine. So to the victor, to the conqueror, to the one who will walk in faithful obedience, Jesus is going, here is, here's what you can take to the bank. I'm going to speak your name personally to the father and go, everything he has, everything I have is his, is hers. And so what a gift Jesus gives to this church that he comes in with a strong word to go, I know your works, you think you're alive, you're actually dead, and then he gives them, he goes, but if you would strengthen what remains, if you would remember the gospel, if you'd rehearse it in your mind and with your lips and with your life, if you would actually live it up, if you would actually repent and turn and come back to me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to clothe you in white, I'm going to make sure your name is in the book, and I'm going to say your name to the Father. Now listen, every single one of us, whether you realize it or not, that's the kind of position you want to be in. Even in this earth, we can, we can kind of understand this. When a person in power or a position in authority goes, hey, this is my friend. You walk into maybe a, a boardroom, you walk into a corporate setting, you walk into a, a locker room, you walk into someplace, and the person in authority or over you goes, hey, this is, hey, th- they're with me. And all the access I have, I want them to have. Every right I have, I now give to them. Listen, that is, that is a candle to the sun, as we sing, in comparison to when Jesus goes, this is my son, this is my daughter, everything I have is theirs. Do you get that? So listen, Jesus never calls us to this incredible, radical step of obedience without offering us an eternally greater reward on the other side. And by reward, I am not talking about that prosperity gospel garbage. I'm talking about a true life-changing reward. I'm talking about a joy that you can't fathom. And so Jesus goes, listen, wake up, church. Wake up. Stop living behind a facade. Stop living in light of maybe a past reputation. What is the current reality of your heart? Do you love me? Is your heart really connected to me? Or are you just connected to the things of me? And so this morning, we're going to not just talk about spiritual inventory. We're going to take spiritual inventory. We're going to ask the Spirit to speak to us through his word. We're going to posture our lives and our minds and our hearts before him in this space and go, Lord, what are those lesser passions that are eclipsing your glory and your love in my life? What are those things that I'm surrendering to that aren't, aren't from you? Hey, if there is sin... This is the moment in space where you would confess that to the Lord and repent and turn to him wholly and fully and meet his grace and his forgiveness. Right? For, for some of you, it, maybe it's from that list that I gave you to go, Lord, that's what I see. That's what I sense. Lord, help me. Wake us up. Listen, we, we will never be corporately as a church what we're not individually. So if we are not individually taking serious the call of Jesus here to wake up, I don't think we can even do it communally or corporately. And so let's take this space. We've got a few extra minutes. I ended a tad early for me um, this morning and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. I'm not gonna put anything on the screen because I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, how would you speak? 
I think when Jesus wrote this letter to the church at Sardis, what I pray happened in the church is that it stopped them dead in their tracks. And that they looked around and they said, we got a full buffet of ministry lists. We've got a full campus maybe of people running around, but do we have the Holy Spirit at the center of it all? Is he shaping us? Is he leading us? Is he growing us more and more into the image of Jesus? I said, that's what I want us to do. I don't want us at the Parks Church to miss it. To be so enamored with the things of God that we miss God himself. Who cares what people on the outside would peer in and say? Oh, you're alive. Oh, the clinics, the ministry, the outreach. I care about what Jesus thinks about this church. What he would say. What he would peer in. And so let's give him the space to peer in. Let's pray and then our host here in a couple minutes, you can lead us in communion.